beginning today a sermon series on the book of Revelation. If there is anything puzzling and difficult in the Bible, Revelation is it. You may not be a person of faith or have not spent much time in the scriptures, but you've probably encountered different parts of Revelation. It's a big deal in our culture. People love to talk about it and make movies about it. So what's with the fire and the armies and the wars and the smoke and the thunder? What the heck is the book of Revelation about? If it's troubling to you, you're in good company. John Calvin, who's a famous theologian in the Protestant Reformation, he wrote a commentary on every single book of the New Testament except for the book of Revelation. And you should know also in the first couple of centuries, the church was divided in whether Revelation should be considered part of Holy Scripture or not. Some people said yes, some people said, I don't know. It's pretty difficult. So if you're here and you've been troubled by the book of Revelation, you made a New Year's resolution one year to read through the Bible, and you started in a Revelation, you probably didn't get very far, because it's difficult. But it still captures our imagination. In fact, I heard a guy say one time, in reference to high school students, but I think it applies to the rest of us. And he was talking about the interest that we have in things that seem to talk about the so-called end times. And Revelation has something to say about those things. He said there are three things that people are always curious about. Sex, the end times, and whether there will be sex in the end times. I think it's probably true. Here's what I want to do today with regard to this book. I just want to give an overview. We're not going to dig into it. There's 22 chapters. There's a lot going on. I just want to give you an overview and some tools that you can perhaps use in your own life, in your own study. There's three things I want to tell you. This is the bottom line of today's sermon. The book of Revelation is John's apocalyptic vision. And then I'll tell you the third thing a bit later. The book of Revelation is John's apocalyptic vision. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, and we should stop there. The word revelation is, a Latin, is an English transliteration of a Latin translation of a Greek word. And the Greek word is where we get the word apocalypse, apocalyptic. In our culture, it means bad stuff. There's that movie Apocalypto about the Mayans or something real violent. Apocalypse means something bad, but in Greek, apocalypse, or the word that apocalypse is derived from, really means like, a, like an unveiling. It's like a pulling back the curtain or the lifting of a lid. And it's related, and you can see why, to our word for revelation, reveal. It's showing something. The revelation of Jesus Christ, or the apocalypse from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants that must, what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. The book of Revelation is somebody named John's apocalyptic vision given to him by God. Now, <clears throat> apocalyptic literature is strange to us in the 21st century, and it's always been sort of strange, but people in the 1st century, particularly 1st century Jews, people to whom most likely this guy John was writing, they would have been more familiar with apocalyptic literature. They would have been familiar with parts of the book of Daniel or the book of Ezekiel and in some things that we call intertestamental literature between the Old and the New Testament. They would have been familiar with it. And apocalyptic literature is famous for its vivid and figurative images. It's filled with those things. In fact, if you've ever read Revelation, you know it's very different from every other book in the Bible because of its apocalyptic nature. <clears throat> the 
book of Matthew begins like this. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and he sort of lays out a story. And it tells the story of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is filled with images, many of which are very difficult for us. Which doesn't mean, however, that it means whatever we want it to mean. In fact, one of the reasons why Revelation has been so popular, I'd suggest, is because it is so difficult to understand, it means it's open to any interpretation we want to give it. You go to the bookstore, you turn on religious television or open the internet, there are as many interpretations as the book of the book of Revelation as there are interpreters. So one of the things we're going to have to do is to come to terms with the idea that it's an apocalyptic vision. It's apocalyptic. It's part of apocalyptic literature. We're going to have to dig into some of these images to get what John's original hearers might have understood. Now, I remember when I was a middle school kid, I heard this song for the first time. And I thought, I had it on a tape deck, I thought this was the greatest song I'd ever heard in my life. My on, Bruce? There we go. Tell me if you've heard this song. Long, long time ago, I can still remember how that music used to make me smile. And I do if I had my chance, but I can make those people dance and maybe they'd be happy for a while. I like this part. This February made me shiver with every paper I delivered. Bad news on the doorstep. I couldn't take one more step. And I can't remember if I cried when I read about his widowed bride. But something touched me deep inside the day. The music died. Now, there's not a single red-blooded American who can't sing the next part. So don't resist, all right? So bye-bye, Miss American Pie. Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. Them good old boys were drinking risky and rye. Singing, this'll be the day that I die. Now. It is a great song, right? One of the, one of the all-time great American rock and roll songs. Here's the question, though. What's it about? Somebody asked Don McLean. Don McLean is the author of the song that's called American Pie. They said, Don, what's that song about? He said, it's about me never having to work another day in my life. <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you what it's about. I've been studying this. I'm a... A minister of the gospel, and I know what it's about. It's about the re-election of Barack Obama, the monetary problems in the European Union, the crisis in Syria, and the iPhone 5. I've studied it, and I'm pretty sure that's what it's about. Now, how do you know that that's not the case? It's filled with elusive imagery. Helter, skelter, in a summer swelter, the birds flew off in a fallout shelter eight miles high and fallen fast. It's one of the lines from the song. What's, what's that about? What's to stop it being about whatever I want it to be about? What's to stop it is 
to take some of the lines, some of the images, and have them fit to what they would have meant to people when they first heard it, or in this case, to Don McLean when he first wrote it. The day the music died is one of the phrases at the beginning. Do you know what that's about? It's about February 3rd, 1959, when the big bopper, Richie Valens and Buddy Holly took off in a small prop plane on an icy evening near Clear Lake, Iowa, and the plane shortly crashed thereafter. I think that's what he must, Don McLean must be saying when he says, I can't remember if I cried when I read about his widowed bride. Buddy Holly had a young wife. I, I've seen the Buddy Holly story. It's about the day the music died. It was a big deal in 1959. And then it's filled with other pop culture Im, uh, imagery from the 60s and 70s. Here's the point. Although apocalyptic literature is filled with all sorts of elusive images... And although they are difficult and not always available to us at first glance, it is not the case that we just make it to be whatever we want it to make it. And for 20 centuries now, particularly in the last thousand years, particularly in the last hundred years, people have made a lot of money, in fact, off of the book of Revelation, making it to be whatever they want it to make. Some of these interpretations have been better and more faithful than others. But one of the tools we're going to have to use if we're going to dig into this book, and I think it's worth it to do it, is to work through what it means that it's apocalyptic. What does it mean that this is John's apocalyptic first and then his vision second? Now, one of the things about apocalyptic literature is that it uses phrases and images that would have made sense to the first century audience without even having to explain it. Just as to certain people in American culture, you can say the day the music died, and they know what you're talking about. They t you know you're talking about the death of Buddy Holly. Or if I were to put an image on the screen of a donkey and an elephant with red, white, and blue coloring, what would it be about? Yeah, Republicans, Democrats, the election, politics, something like that. You know that because you live in 21st century America. But I bet even in 21st century China, not everybody knows what those images mean, and if we took the images and put them in different colors and changed it around, it would be even hard for us to know what it meant. Much less people 20 centuries from now. This is what's happening in the book of Revelation. There's lots of imagery, much of it very vivid. But John is trying to give a message to his first century audience. And so our job is to figure out what the message is to his first century audience. And then, like everything else in the scriptures, figure out what the message to us in the 21st century is. And I think it's a message worth hearing. And although Revelation is a difficult book, I really do think it's worth taking the time to dig into it. Because I think it offers something to us that we, we're not hearing any other way. Verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Verse 10, in the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. Several months ago, I preached on Ezekiel's famous vision in Ezekiel chapter 37 in the Old Testament. And Ezekiel says, the Lord took me by the Spirit, and he brought me to a big, wide valley, and was filled with dry bones. It is one of the most vibrant images in all of world literature, I'd say, Ezekiel 37. Now, was Ezekiel actually taken to a valley filled with dry bones? Maybe. Was it some sort of spiritual experience he had? Maybe. 
We're not really sure, but it's not really the point. The point is what Ezekiel saw and then what he was able to tell his people. And what Ezekiel saw was a bunch of dry bones coming together, click, 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 dry bone to dry bone. And God taking something that was dead and dry and bringing it back to new life. And it was a message to encourage the Israelites in exile in Babylon. John's vision is sort of the same thing. He says, on the Lord's day, I was taken by the Spirit. In other words, God gave me a vision and gave me the responsibility of telling it to you. Three things you need to know about the book of Revelation. One, it's apocalyptic and uses those sorts of imagery. And the very fact here that John says, I was taken out in the Spirit, would have been like a dog whistle to all the first century Jews who heard his book and said, oh, okay, just like what happened with Ezekiel. We get it. You need to know it's apocalyptic and you need to know it's a vision. If you're like me, from time to time you have crazy dreams. The problem with dreams is that, at least with me, as soon as I wake up and put my feet on the floor, the dream recedes from my consciousness the way the sea recedes from the shore when the tide goes out. Unless I tell somebody about it right away, I don't remember it. Do you have that same experience? So sometimes what I'll do when I have a really crazy dream is I'll wake up and tell my wife right away. And I find myself saying these sorts of things. Tell me if you're the same way. Well, <clears throat> you were there, but I didn't, I didn't know you. And I was there, but we're like on a pyramid. But there was water there. And then I was talking, but nobody could hear me. And it was kind of like our whole family was there, but I couldn't really see them. You, have you ever told dreams like that? What you're trying to do is express in concrete, everyday language images that are almost beyond expression, at least for most of us. And also the other thing about a dream is dreams don't work in, in sort of a sequential, logical way. A, then B, then C, then D. Dreams are often experiential. Things are all happening at once. And now you see John's difficulty. See, John is given a, a, a vision by God about some things, and it's filled with this very vivid, almost dreamlike imagery. And then John is told, as we'll see, I want you to write it down and send it to the churches. Now imagine if I showed you this painting. This painting is called The Triumph of Death. It's from 1562. It's painted by a man named Peter Bruegel, the elder. And I said, I, I want you to write a paper, pretend you're back in school, God help you, uh, pretend you're back in school, I want you to write a paper and describe the painting. Now, when you were describing the painting in your paper, you'd have to begin A, then B, then C. But your experience of seeing the painting doesn't work like that, does it? You see it in one corner, you see it in another corner, you look over here, you see what's happening here. It's filled with activity. How do you describe something that doesn't work linearly and, and how do you describe something unlike a painting that's three-dimensional a vision you can see that John's task is a difficult one in fact one of the keys to the book of Revelation that I found very helpful is although some of the things clearly happen sequentially this happens and then this happens not all of the book is happening in that order now in our scriptures we have to have chapter 1 chapter 2 chapter 3 chapter 4 it has to work like that but that doesn't mean that's how John saw it. John may have saw the top right corner, so to speak, 
in the top left corner at the same time, but he has to describe them one before the other. There's three things you need to know about the book of Revelation. One, it's John's apocalyptic, and two, his vision. It's an apocalyptic vision. And so we need to approach it not the way we would approach reading the newspaper or even some of the other uh, parts of Scripture, but in a way of reading and almost more experiencing might be the right word, experiencing this apocalyptic vision. This is how it begins. Verse 10. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet. Very small word, the word like. It's a comparison word. It's a simile. It says this is like this. Does that mean the voice was a trumpet? No, I don't know what the voice was like, but somehow the voice was loud. It was piercing. It caught your attention. It was arresting. It was a voice like a trumpet. Again, John is writing to us and trying to describe the spiritual vision he's been given by the Lord. So he uses words like like and as all the time. I heard a voice like a trumpet, verse 11, and this is John's job. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Most of these cities don't mean anything to us today, but these were cities in what is present-day Turkey. At that time, it was called the Roman province of Asia, Asia Minor. You can visit some of their ruins today. John's job is to take what he sees, write it down on a scroll, and send it to those churches. From them, ultimately, it has come to us. So the next 22 chapters of the book of Revelation are John's record of the vision that he was given and his attempt to explain it to the churches. Verse 12, I turned around, this is John speaking, this is him and his vision, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands, that's the first strange image in the book, and we'll see, this is one of the few that is actually explained for us, when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The phrase son of man would have meant a whole lot to first century Jews. It's, a, it's an apocalyptic term. It's used a lot in the book of D Daniel. And Jesus, if you've ever read the scriptures, often refers to himself, at least in Mark's gospel, as the son of man. They would have known. Okay, the one who's speaking to John is not anybody. It's the resurrected Lord, Jesus Christ himself. Verse 14, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. Let's stop there. Now, was his hair wool? No. Was it even white? Not sure. See, this passage in the Gospels, we call it the experience of the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is up in a rural place with Peter, James, and John. And all of a sudden, they have this strange experience where they see him in a different way, and he's clothed with white, shining clothes. Whiter than you could even make through laundry. Really white. Often when people meet angelic creatures in the scriptures, they're, they're like shining. <clears throat> Whether or not Jesus' hair was white, I don't think it's the point. The point is it was, it was so bright, it was shining. It, it was white like snow or white like wool. You, you see what John is trying to do here. He's trying to explain to us things that are almost 
beyond words. In any case, this experience of seeing the risen Christ was a powerful one. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Again, all those words like, 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 like. Well, it was, it was like this. It wasn't this exactly, but it was like this. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. It's a very interesting image to me. Does John want us to believe that there was actually a sword coming out of the speaker's mouth? Maybe. Or is he just trying to tell us that what was coming out of his mouth was, was piercing, it was sharp? It says in Hebrews chapter 4 that the word of God is piercing like a sword, able to slice even between bone and marrow. Is that what John is trying to say here? Out of his mouth was, was a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and he said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. In Greek, the first letter is alpha and the last letter is omega. I am the alpha and the omega. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Fortunately for us, unlike some of the images in John's vision, this one is explained for us. As I just said, the speaker is the risen Lord. It's not anybody who's talking to John. It's the one whose name is exalted above every name and at whose name every knee shall bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. It's the risen Christ is the one who's giving this vision to John. That's important. We'll come back to that. Write, therefore, what you have seen, both what is now and what will take place later. The book of Revelation had things to do about present time, and also has things to do about God's ultimate plan for his creation. It is not only in the future, and it is not only in the present. It's something to do with both. And then Jesus explains the image that John first sees, verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands, is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We're going to encounter a lot of vibrant images in the rest of Revelation. But here's one that fortunately for us has been defined. What do the seven golden lampstands mean? They don't mean the seven hills of Rome. Rome was famously a city founded on seven hills around the river Tiber. They don't mean the seven days of the week. They don't mean your seven cousins. They don't mean seven years. They don't mean seven cows. What do the seven golden lampstands mean? He tells us. They mean these seven churches, the churches we already referred to in verse 11. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. See, there's three things you need to know. Revelation is John's apocalyptic first, vision second. So does all kinds of strange imagery. And he's trying to tell us what he's seen. And one of the things he saw was the risen Christ standing in brilliance, holding in his hand, Seven golden lampstands. And the lampstands represent these seven churches. The whole rest of the book works like that. John uses and describes to us some images that would have been familiar to his first century audience. He talks a lot about Babylon, as we'll see later on. Now, by this time, the Babylonian Empire, which was a big deal in the Old Testament, had crumbled into dust. It no longer existed. When John talks about Babylon, he's not talking about Nebuchadnezzar and his folks. 
He's talking about Caesar and Rome. It's almost like a code word. One way to think about the Roman Empire is to talk about Babylon. Now, at the time of the prophets and the exile, Babylon was the world power. When Ezekiel sees his great vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, Ezekiel is living as a prisoner in exile in Babylon. Babylon controlled the whole world. And it seemed as if Babylon was in control and God had been kicked off his throne. And part of Ezekiel's job as a prophet of God is to remind his people, often using fantastic imagery, things aren't only what they seem. Babylon isn't going to last forever. But the promises I've made to my people beginning way back in ancient history with Abraham, my servant, those promises will be fulfilled and be made true. Fast forward several hundred years, God's people find themselves again living under the boot of a foreign power. In this case, Rome. We're not exactly sure when Revelation was written down. We think probably around the end of the first century, around 80, 90, something like that. Around the end of the first century, there's an emperor, emperor, Roman emperor named uh, Dominician. And he put in motion serious persecution of the church. Emperor, em, uh, empire-wide persecution. Now, let me ask you, if, if you're a Christian, one of God's people living in the first century, wouldn't it seem as if Rome has all the power and God doesn't? Couldn't you sometimes begin to think that the promises of God's triumph are just empty words? And ultimately what matters in the world is Caesar's might. And if you were someone who knew your scriptures, wouldn't you say, you know, it's very similar to what was happening before with Babylon. And so when John talks about Babylon, he's often trying to communicate to his first century folks, I'm talking about the Roman Empire and God's stronger than it. So let's bring it into the 21st century. What, is it, what are our Babylons? Can I give you a small example? It may seem silly. <clears throat> I was reading in the paper this week how rhino poaching in South Africa and other parts of Africa has just gone through the roof in the last couple of years. What happens is these rhinos are shot and their horns are cut off and they're used in eastern medicine, special kind of medicine popular in the Far East. People will pay big bucks for it. So it's a huge underground trade. Several years ago to 10 years ago, there was like 90 rhino poachings in Kruger National Park in South Africa. Last year, there was like 600. Rhinos are very endangered. And I've had the experience of seeing them in the wild. And I want my kids to grow up and see them in the wild. But I, I look at that and I know it's a small example and I think, how, how is this not going to end in the wrong way? It seems like the poachers have all the power. Huge market demand, corrupt local officials, weapons, helicopters. The rhinos don't stand a chance. I, I know it's a small example. I just bring it up to talk about the state of the world. See, this week, you're going to look around at the world and you're going to think, it seems like there's no hope for this or that. This group is too strong. This is making too many changes. This is going to get screwed up. What's your Babylon? See, the way Revelation works and the way it can work for us is us to puzzle through what is John trying to say to his first century audience and then... What does it mean for us? 
And although we live in a free country and we're able to worship here for free today, I'm telling you, the majority of God's people today live in other parts of the world where it's not free to gather on a Sunday and give praise. Think about how that means to them. Think about what that means for them as far as Babylon today. There's three things you need to know about the book of Revelation. First, it's apocalyptic. It uses strange imagery that are kind of like a touchstone. It's a code word. It's like a hyperlink. One word, one image meant something to the first century Jewish audience that were receiving John's letters. But two, the second thing you need to know is that it's a vision. John is trying to explain to us what is perhaps almost beyond human words. Which is why it's such a fantastic book. It's such a great book for your imagination. It's why, although Revelation doesn't really tell us anything new about God's plan that we didn't already know, that is God is the creator, redeemer, and sustainer, that is God has power even over death, that the one reigning in history is the one who's been crucified, Although Revelation doesn't tell us that, we, are, we already knew that. One of the virtues, I think, and blessings of Revelation is that it lights up our imagination. You know, it used to be the case that Christians made the best art in the world. I think it's time for us to reclaim that. I think God's people ought to be the most creative, imaginative people in the world. Revelation is a way of baptizing our imagination. There's three things you need to know. It's an apocalyptic vision. And here's the third one, and this is so important. And it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. You may think, I don't need to know this stuff. It's something that happened. Or you may be afraid of the book of Revelation. I'm telling you. This has always been used to build up God's people. Not to cause them to be afraid, but to cause them to shout with joy. Because as we'll see, at the center of John's vision, the one who reigns in history is not Caesar or all the various pretenders to the throne. It's the one who came for the world, was crucified for its sin, and has been raised again to new life. John has this great image of a lamb sitting on the throne. When John the Baptist first sees Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee, he says, Behold, that's the Lamb of God. And it's that same lamb who now sits enthroned on history. The parents in Newtown, Connecticut, they don't need to be told that the world is evil. They need to be told that evil is temporary and God is going to triumph over it completely. Tomorrow, you don't need to be told about the evil of the world unless you've been living with your head in the sand. You know about betrayals and diseases and diagnoses and murders and pogroms and holocausts. What you need to know as God's people is that those things ultimately are temporary and the one on the throne is the risen Lord. What you need to know is the same thing that John's people needed to know as well as sometimes it's difficult to be faithful. In fact, what John is telling his people is that sometimes the ultimate price is paid by those who refuse to give in to Caesar. Who's calling for your allegiance today? Where do you need to resist and say, no, no. I'm one of the Lord's. I've been bought with a price. Tomorrow morning when you face temptation, how do you need to be reminded that what you're taking part in is a great cosmic battle between good and evil? Yeah, it's manifested itself right here among us in small ways. Just a few choices, just a phone call, just a relapse, just a little bit of gossip, just a small 
accounting changed. But the things that we're involved in tomorrow and today have eternal significance. And eternally, ultimately, God's purposes will be vindicated. And death and hell are defeated. There's three things you need to know about the book of Revelation. One, it's an apocalyptic. Two, vision of John. And three, it's a vision given to him by Jesus Christ to show him the true nature of the world. And that is that God ultimately always triumphs. And God's people just need to be faithful. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may God give us the eyes to see and the courage to respond. Amen.